When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search. But what if you could get rid of the search and just match? You can with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. College Football Nerds here talking Texas and Alabama. Both had kind of easy cupcakes in the opening weekend, and now Alabama takes their first trip on the road, I think, in 10 years, Josh, mm-hmm. uh, to play a uh, out-of-conference Power 5 opponent. It's been the neutral site city lately, and this is exciting for college football. I, for one, Josh, am not very anti-neutral site game. I think there's some cool environment situations there. We saw that with Florida State and LSU. But this is also cool, too, getting them on campus. It's going to be 90-something degrees Saturday, which might play into this game. We're going to talk about it a little bit. But, Josh, to get us started, let's give Alabama fans maybe a little primer. And for both of y'all, both Alabama fans and Texas fans, we did previews for both of these teams. Uh, So if you want to check that out. Now we've got more relevant data than maybe our previews, but it might be worth checking out. Josh, give Alabama fans a little bit of primer on what they can expect. They know Steve Sarkeesian, but they may not know Quinn Ewers. They may not know Bijan Robinson. Um, what they can expect Saturday based on what you saw in the opener against ULM. So first, howdy y'all. I'm actually on camera for once. They finally let me out. Uh, my parole officer says if I'm good, I can keep doing this at least two days a week. So we'll see how that works. Uh, my primer really on Texas is that they've got a handful of really good players, and then there's a lot on this roster that needs to sort of step up to get to the rest of them. Uh, the biggest name that most people know is Bijan Robinson. I would say he and Xavier Worthy are really 1A and 1B to what makes this offense tick. If you look at the Louisiana Monroe game and what they did offensively, everything really, in my opinion, keyed off Bijan Robinson. Just looking at it here, uh, 71 yards on just 10 carries. That was a 7.1 uh, yard per carry average. 
But more than that, I, I felt like whenever they needed to get yards or wanted to get a drive together to put some points on the board, they just dumped it off to Bijan whatever way they felt like, let him move forward. Uh, a lot of people are familiar with Xavier Worthy. He's a guy that almost ended up playing his career at Michigan, ended up at Texas. Alabama's a school that also wanted him. And what Worthy really brings to the offense is a sort of an element of an explosiveness. And the guy I would compare him to if you're an Alabama fan would be probably probably Calvin Ridley. He's the kind of guy that's smooth. He's more physical than I think a lot of people realize. He'll definitely break a tackle. Uh, that was one of the biggest things he did last year in the Big 12. And then I'll say a third guy that really looked like he's coming on strong is Jatavian Sanders. I, I felt like more than anything, what he does uh, is he gives a bit of a safety net for Quinn Ewers at quarterback to sort of settle in. And then let's talk a little bit about Ewers and what he is. We we were debating really whether or not he'd be the starting quarterback. I kind of felt like maybe he wouldn't, uh, and I was surprised when they moved forward. And the reason for that is if you go back and looked at their spring game, um, really it's the only tape any of us have, I felt like there was a lot of reason to believe that Ewers was very inconsistent in his reads and in his uh, really his performance, accuracy, however you want to do it. The quarterback position is really predicated upon – making good decisions, but also knowing what decision you're going to make such that you set your feet and you throw on time and on rhythm. Ewers doesn't always do that. He's very likely to throw to the guy that he's supposed to throw to on a given play. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. And because of that, sometimes his feet aren't in the right position and the throw is a little bit errant. Uh, but what he does bring to the table is if he has his feet set and he's throwing, he can throw anywhere on the field. He can make any point throw. And so that gives them an ability to go over the top. My expectation from Texas, and you don't really see this against a team like Louisiana Monroe, my expectation is that Texas is going to really focus on being an offense that's predicated on the run and then lets Ewers just try to make a handful of shot plays that everyone knows Sark is really good at scheming up. So with Ewers, you have the ability to take those deep shots and probably complete them at a high percentage if the guys are open. Uh, the position they were at, if they'd gone some other direction at quarterback, I don't think Hudson Card would have been able to do that. So he may have been better at dinking and dunking uh, without being as turnover prone, but you probably would have lost the ability to complete those deep shots on a consistent basis. He's just too inaccurate. So even if a guy's wide open, he will overthrow a receiver in a way the viewers won't. So that's sort of my primer. Now, I'm going to turn this around a little bit and talk about the other parts of the team, right? Because we, we can talk about the defense and Overshone is the one guy you want to know at linebacker. But my concern with Texas is really the depth of the roster. Uh, the factoid I threw out last year, based off my research, B.J. Foster was the highest ranked DB recruit playing in the Big 12. And as Texas fans know, Foster got sidelined late in the year, right? He ends up transferring. You end up seeing him in an FCS team he didn't even get to a P5 team. So what does that say, right, that when you look at the five-star talent, if you look at the college team composite for Texas, yeah, they're ranked as a top-10 team. I, I think it's a bit of a paper tiger. The depth of that roster is not great. Uh, the sort of offensive and defensive lines are not where you'd like them to be. And I think if you look at the core of that roster, it probably doesn't live up to its billing. That's not Sarkeesian's fault, but it's something that they're going to really have to deal with in this game. And on the flip side for Alabama, like we saw they were, you know, that mega monster that we've seen for a while in Tuscaloosa. The concern we had for both Alabama and Georgia coming into this season was, you know, there's question marks at wide receiver. And we've talked recently, we've, we've been pretty heavy on this, that 
one of the biggest determining factors in terms of incoming talent from the next year, carryover talent. A lot of people think it's offensive line. It's really wide receiver and DB. And, you know, there was this concern because, yes, Alabama recruits really well, but who's going to fill in the gaps at wide receiver? Burton looked great Saturday. Um, Prentice looked incredible and, and that's the thing that they didn't really have last year was that slot weapon uh jojo was hurt a good bit and they just really didn't have that dynamic piece in the slot um of course jameer gibbs was incredible i think he was 93 yards nine something per carry and one thing i really like seeing from bryce young that i didn't see as much of last year at least to this level was and they called it out on the broadcast was his game management um, moving, moving everybody around, moving pieces, really reading the defense. I think that slot touchdown or that um, that quick slant touchdown to Burton was was all just what he saw at the line. But Josh, in thinking about what we saw from Alabama Saturday, you know, I'm trying to think in my head around this 19 point spread, which has moved up. I think it opened at 14. 17-ish on Saturday, and then after the games, it moved even further. Um, I feel like Texas can manufacture some points. Either they're going to hit a shot or two that's going to lead to some points or some question marks in the secondary for Alabama, not in terms of talent, but just getting all the pieces settled. Um, But looking at what I saw from Alabama Saturday, even with what I called out on our live show, Bryce Young did miss some passes in the red zone. People killed me for it. But I think he had two or three to Holden that were not great. Um, that just maybe first game of the year sort of thing. It wasn't really a criticism. We know what he can do. Um, but even if Bryce Young isn't a hundred percent, offensive line looked better. They've got they've got depth for once at running back. Let's say that Texas can score some points. Is it going to matter in the grand scheme of things just because? nobody's keeping Alabama from scoring 40-plus. And I think that's the ultimate question, right? Uh, The question with Alabama is, how do you deal with a team that's a 19-point favorite, someone that last week, not only did they get up 55 to nothing to start the second half, they got up 55 to nothing, scoring on every drive they played and allowing two first downs in 10 drives from Utah State. And Utah State was 19th in the country in total offense. Now, they're about average in yard per play. Several teams slowed them down or shut them down largely, not to that extent. It really felt like if Alabama had their starters in, and frankly, numerically, it does track that way, I think they could have scored 100 points on Utah State. And that's an 11-win team from last season, so they're not a bad football team. Um, Not saying they're good, but they're a lot better than Louisiana Monroe. So I'm not really sure what you do. That's the conundrum, right? I think... I agree with you. There's some pieces that are coming into play now for Alabama that have turnover. One is the corner position. They've got a lot of competition at the corner position, but I think it's in large part because they don't really quite know if they have somebody that can lock down one side of the field. I think they're comfortable with McKinstry at one corner. Uh, The other slot, they got three guys competing. Uh, Eli Ricks is banged up. I saw one shot of the Utah State game. He was wincing in pain. I, I think he genuinely has a back issue. Then they have a junior college transfer, Kyrie Jackson, that played in the national title game. And just like the title game, you can see at times he gets out of phase. Uh, He's a very, very physical guy. Very long, unusually fast and long for that position, but he's just not as consistent, I think, as they'd like. I actually think he's more talented, this may be heresy, than Eli Ricks. Uh, But his consistency and technique isn't quite to that point yet. 
Uh, and then finally, you've got a, a freshman that actually started the game in Terry and Arnold. So they've got a lot of options, but I could see Sarkeesian leveraging. Again, you get Xavier Worthy on a new starting corner. You have Ewers throwing deep. Maybe they put some points on the board. Um, is it enough? Because even if even if that happens, right, even if Texas hits on three shots, they get 20, 21 points in the game. It's hard to see Alabama scoring less than 30, uh, honestly, on almost anyone. I think the receivers aren't quite on the same page yet. Um, but if you look at the pieces they have at running back at receiver, the fact that they have a Heisman candidate quarterback, had one of the craziest throws I've ever seen, a sidearm throw over the middle of the field, they're going to hit on a lot of plays. They're going to have scoring drives. Uh, Texas's defense has still got a long way to improve to be an elite unit. And I think even a top-end elite unit would struggle to hold this team to 30. So I'm kind of curious your thoughts on it as well. I mean, do you do you think Alabama is genuinely an unstoppable juggernaut on offense, or is it more like the Notre Dame-Ohio State situation? Is it possible to slow them down, hold them to 24-25 uh, if you play really good defensive play? And again, you can even take a step further in this conversation and say if that's even the case, can Texas do it? I, I don't know. I think that, you know, the thing we saw with Notre Dame, no offense to Texas fans or their team right now, I think Notre Dame's got a better defense, at least fundamentally in the front seven, than um, than Texas. And that's why one of the reasons why they were able to slow Ohio State down. And they still gave it 24 points. And Ohio State, like you said, Saturday night, if they had one more quarter of football, they're probably putting two more touchdowns on the board. Um, I think Alabama looked in a lot of ways like Georgia in that they look like they're in week six or week seven. And that's one of the hallmarks of Alabama. And I think what we're going to see with Georgia too, in that you get what you get out of the gate. They are going to improve a little bit over the course of the year, but they have some sort of magic where they come out pretty strong uh, from the start. One of the things that, that you didn't really point on or pick on that I think is worth talking about um, and this might be a little bit of hypothetical because we don't exactly know, but I feel like the Texas the Texas offensive line is going to struggle with you know Dallas Turner and Will Anderson and and you know complex blitz packages. I don't know if we're talking about shot plays if if Quinn's going to have time to get the ball downfield because I feel like he might be running for his life, and that's you know when you talk about how Brian Kelly probably started. Jaden Daniels at quarterback because he knew he's going to have a quarterback running for his life because that offensive line was that bad. I think that we might have to see some running yards from the quarterback at Texas if they're going to keep the chains moving, which maybe takes that shot play out of the equation. So I, we did this last time. I'd like to do it this time too. Um, Josh, if, if, if we are in the third quarter of this game, early fourth quarter, and it's just a struggle, just a dogfight, which would be surprising to everybody. What does that mean that's gone wrong for Alabama? I think the thing that really would have to go wrong for Alabama to end up in a dogfight is that Alabama's offensive line is going to have to have issues. Last year, that was the common denominator. People talk about injuries to receiver, and yeah, they lost Jamison Williams to a targeting call in the Auburn game. They lost Mechie and then Williams in the playoff. But I think if you back up a little bit and you look at the LSU game in particular, it was pretty clear they had both receivers. It was the offensive line that gave them fits. And it was injuries in the offensive line last year that really caused them a lot of problems down the stretch. So the one thing I will say Texas does have is some athletes on the edge. And I think it's possible that you can maybe expose the fact that they've got a transfer, a Vandy transfer who's played 
SEC football. You know, they played at Vandy, but he played against Georgia and teams like that at left tackle. They've got uh, a you know second-year player at right tackle. I don't know if he's a redshirt freshman or freshman. It's all kind of strange in COVID in the way that they do redshirts this time. But you've got two new players in the edges with a team that struggled with it. They didn't manage to have their full starting roster in the opener. There's reason to believe there could be some inconsistency on the offensive side of the ball when you're talking offensive line. And if that happens, I do think the offense could slow down a lot because what they really lack is guys that can get open quickly in space with experience. There's two guys that you really want to remember on the roster as names that maybe you don't know, and that's really Jaheim Otis and Kobe Prentice. They're two freshmen starting at nose guard and slot wide receiver, respectively. I think it's really notable that Prentice is starting. One, it says a lot about what they think about him. Uh, if you go back, I think it's, I'm not sure if it's Amari Cooper or Calvin Ridley. That was the last time they had an actual true freshman named as the full starter. It may have even gone further back than that. I'm not sure they've had somebody on that depth chart without a slash as a starting wide receiver as a true freshman. But it says a lot about what he is. But I also think it says a lot about the depth they have at that kind of skill. Jojo Earl was supposed to be the guy to step into that role. He hurt his lower body. Uh, Slade Bolden graduated, and I think they just don't have another real option of somebody that can get open in, you know, in short yardage space. Uh, and so it's not just about long yard, long speed, which I think Prentice has, might blow the top off the defense at some point. I think it's more about having somebody that can actually get open in a slot, uh, some sort of quick throw, some sort of outlet, and that takes short yardage agility. And so that was something I think they really missed last year when the offensive line was banged up because Earl got hurt at the same time. And I I think Bolden did a good job, but he still wasn't a great outlet. So in my view, for them to be in a dogfight, one, it's going to have to be low scoring. I, I don't think... Look, Turner is a first-round draft pick and would be the best pass rusher on probably 126 out of 130 teams. And Anderson is a tier and a half better than him. This is just those two guys on their own really blow up anything an offense wants to do. And they were phenomenal, I think, um, in that opener. But, you know, I think maybe it starts with the ability to slow down the offense. And I'm curious, you know, is there something you think defensively that Alabama could potentially be exploited? We talked about corner, but I'm going to head a little bit towards linebacker because that's something we were talking about earlier. Yeah, the one thing that's given Alabama fits in the past, especially Texas A&M, is running backs and tight ends in the passing game. And it's, it's, I don't know if it's because they're on linebacker, how their linebackers are built or their scheme or whatever, but they have the tendency to either completely leave an, a running back uncovered or just lose guys in space. And I think that's an opportunity here, probably not to score, uh, but to keep the chains moving to a point that keeps this play, play and keep away with the Alabama offense. You know, there's a lot that's being said about Sarkeesian knowing this defense and knowing this scheme and, and knowing how to dial up some points against it. But Saban made a good point yesterday. He said, everybody assumes, you know, these teams know us, but they also forget that we know them too. Um, and, and I think that, you know, for me, if, if, if this thing goes really sideways for Texas and there is an opportunity here, and Texas fans, I hope y'all don't, I hope Texas fans don't feel that we're like hating on their team or whatever. This is just a bad matchup, in my opinion, for them. So if they feel the tenor of this conversation being a little bit negative, like I think that I think there's some good things that they can show Saturday. I don't think they're going to win the game. One of the reasons why I think this might have a chance to turn sideways for Texas, even if they can hit some some plays to their back, I think they will to their backs and tight ends, is Alabama usually plays pretty vanilla against these cupcake teams. They usually 
look ugly and Saban's got something to complain about. I think years ago it was like Colorado State or somebody like they, it was real ugly. They didn't win by by a lot of points. Um, but that's what he does. In these games, he works on the things that they're not good at. If that's what they were doing against Utah State, because there were some things that were a little herky-jerky and new offensive line, new wide receiver, there's a lot of skill position players that are or a lot of players in the offense that are new faces. But it could be that some of that was just they're working on things that they're not great at yet, which means they have a whole bag of tricks that they didn't even break out Saturday. I think the flip side of that is with a rookie quarterback and you've got a lot of moving pieces, especially with, with Naylor getting hurt and having to rely on maybe some second-string guys at wide receiver, um, I think that they were probably showing you what they're going to show you Saturday. Certainly they've got some things schematically and some things in terms of you know shot plays that are still in the bag, but I think to get this quarterback comfortable with what he's going to do against Alabama – they had to try to run him through all of the paces uh, against a, a lesser opponent, and he still didn't look elite. They put up a bunch of points because they really could out-athlete ULM, but he didn't look like somebody that was super comfortable yet. He might be by week six or seven, and I almost wish this game was in six or seven weeks. Um, but that, to me, is the concern. Is Alabama probably was playing at 70% Saturday, Texas was playing at 100%, and what we saw was things that if you know Alabama, you're going to see some problems. So, Josh, give me before we get into to predictions, give me one more thought on matchups and, and maybe something we haven't talked about in terms of, you know, you touched on the Alabama defense. Um, how much of an unexpected, you know, pleasant surprise from the Texas offensive line are we going to have to see for A&M to exploit what might be a weakness in the secondary? Is it something that like, hey, we haven't seen that in years? Or, hey, if they're just a little bit better than last year, they can probably get into it. Well, first I'm going to have to call you out because no. you just said A&M. So I think Very every sorry. Texas fan every Texas fan right now is, is screaming. Uh, some of them have just thrown their laptops out the window. Um, you know, cats are laying with dogs. It's a terrible, terrible world we're in. No, I think the reality for Texas is you're going to have to see the, the offensive line have the performance of their lives. You know, Texas did give LSU a great game a few years ago. That was 2019, right? There were a lot of factors that came into play in that, but the biggest one is that they were able to hold hold point offensively throughout the entire game. It wasn't just Sam Ellinger being, being who he was, which is a guy that could be an absolute gamer. Uh, they also hit some big plays down the field. And I think they took advantage of the fact that LSU early in that year really wasn't a great defense because they weren't very consistent. So I think the offensive line is going to have to play. I mean, they have to play phenomenal. But I, I do still feel like I do still feel like early in that game, Louisiana Monroe got more push in the interior than I expected. I think there is the possibility that Texas could pound the ball a little bit between the tackles and kind of wear on Alabama. That was something a number of teams did last year. They had some success right up the middle and just kind of leaning on them. And it took about halfway through the season before Alabama did eventually totally shut that down. Uh, but it reared its ugly head again at the end of the Georgia game. So, yeah, it, I'm kind of curious. Maybe we can have a conversation on this part of it. It's hard for me to understand really where the edge would be from Texas. I can talk about hitting a couple shot plays. Uh, I can talk about running B. John Robinson underneath uh, and trying to wear down the center of that defensive line. But I have to think, right, Alabama has the edge and has the edge on the edge. And 
Alabama has enough running backs and a good enough interior offensive line that they're going to be able to pound Texas. So, I mean, don't you agree with me? It really feels like Texas is never going to have an outright advantage in this game. They've got to find little things they do well and then kind of hope everything else doesn't snowball against them. I think it's a couple of things. I think one is that crowd. I think it's a home game, super hot, crazy crowd. We saw Alabama beat Florida by two points last year. They hung on. They were way better than that Florida team. But they were clinging to dear life by the end of that game. And I think that there's possibility that there's some of that. Like if if, if Alabama was a little bit off on Saturday at home against Utah State, I could see that happening so I think it's a combination of that crowd noise maybe forcing some offensive mistakes or drives that that should end in points that don't, um, maybe some quick three and outs, and then playing keep away from Alabama by, by yes, maybe getting a, some scores here or there with shot plays, but mostly tight ends and running backs. Wide receiver screens generally don't do well against Alabama when they have a physical secondary, and right now they're pretty physical. Um, you know, you talk about that 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 uh, Kyrie Jackson um, versus Eli Ricks. He blew up a blocking slot wide receiver into a wide receiver catching a screen Saturday and tackled him with the with the offensive player. Um, so I don't think wide receiver screens are going to work, but that that little space right there um, between your your outside players and your offensive line, they can find some yards. And if they can find enough yards to keep the ball moving, it's all about slowing. It's really, really going slow, shortening the game, finding points where you can, and just kind of getting into the fourth quarter. I don't think it's going to happen, and that's why I'm, I'm, I'll give you my score right now. I don't think it's going to happen because I think Alabama can also stretch the field in ways that, that Texas isn't ready for, but I think it's a little closer than maybe people are feeling. Um, I've got 34-17. Um, and I do think that that crowd's going to come into play. I think that heat's going to come into play. And look, Alabama plays in the heat too. But when, you know, LSU plays in the heat, and that team was dead tired by the end of that game in 2019, and that's when people start scoring, even people that are that are not quite as on your level because that's a great equalizer. So 34-17, Alabama, um, a little bit more of a dogfight than they're expecting. Give me your score. My score prediction for this one's probably going to be a lot more lopsided. Uh, I, it's 19 points for a reason. I don't think it's an unrealistic spread, but when you talk 20 points, you know, 30 to 10, 40 to 20 is kind of where the range it's at. I think this game's going to be, I'm going to say 42, 13. And I don't think Alabama is going to run up the score on their old coach, but I think they're probably going to be in a position to do so. I, I don't think that's a bold take necessarily. And, you know, this is something we talked about a lot. You know, there's a comparison between Alabama and Georgia, I left Alabama number one in my top 10 rankings this week. Uh, we redo it every week. We shuffle everything. And the reality for me is Alabama was darn near spotless. And I don't see any particular flaws on this team, just like I don't see any particular flaws on Georgia. And I think Texas is still in a rebuilding mode. And the problem in football is that very often you're defined not by your best player, but by your worst on the field. And when you face an elite team, and this is where, like, we've talked to receivers, right? You know, Alabama has a little bit of a rebuilt receiving core. They get Burton, who was the top receiver from Georgia. Uh, they have Treshawn Holden, who's come on big for them. They have another guy, Harrell, that from uh, Louisville, we both think might actually be the best receiver on the team, but he was in a walking boot and probably will be out, I would guess, for about a month before he's healthy enough to really contribute. Sure, those guys are great with a Heisman Trophy winner. 
But the big thing I think people aren't really talking about enough is the fact that last year, at one point, they had no healthy scholarship running backs. Uh, Brian Robinson was the only guy for the latter part of the year, and he was dealing with leg injuries. Uh, but they lost Roydale Williams to injury two-thirds of the way of the year, and he was playing because they lost Jason McClellan to injury early in the year. That's not a problem for them anymore. They can, if they want to, pound the ball play after play. And like the Cincinnati game didn't get out of hand because, yeah, they ran it like crazy with Robinson, but he had to come out at some point. And when he came out, they lost that physicality. They lost the ability to pound the ball down up the middle, and they kind of became one-dimensional every time he rotated. The fact that they can rotate properly, I think, really makes this Alabama team a lot more dangerous compared to what I think is a much improved offensive line. I don't think Texas is going to be able to hold serve. I think they're going to get in a hole. And I think their plan is probably going to be very conservative offensively. If I'm Sarkeesian, I don't want a freshman quarterback trying to take too many aggressive shots. So because of that, I think that they're going to try to back off a little bit, um, try to take shot plays when they can. Maybe they connect on a couple of them, which is where you know maybe 13 points comes from. But I don't think they're going to move the ball with any consistency. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to say 42-13. I think this is a really tough matchup for Texas. I think they have a long way to go. And we talked about that in our in our preview. I think this roster is more of a rebuilding job, frankly, than Saban inherited. I, they don't have the defensive and offensive line core that Saban got uh, in 2007. And it's going to take Sark a few years to really get this roster to where it needs to be. And this is trying to climb the top of the mountain. This is playing 2005 USC right out the gate this year, and I, I think it's just too far. All right, well, that's it for Alabama and Texas. Let us know in the comments what you think this game is going to look like. Give us your score prediction. We'll mix it up with you. And uh, also, we did a video on uh, CFP expansion. We're not wild about it. If you followed us for a while, you might know that as well. And for you Alabama fans that hung on this late uh, this is a little bit of uh, Sabro sing Singularity from Trip Tab. I had it on a live show Saturday, too. Uh, pretty awesome brewery down in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, and, uh, yeah, so give us, your, give us your score prediction, but also check out that video. And then if you want to get our whole live show that we did Saturday night, we've got it on a podcast version. Link's in the description. Also, you can find it on our channel. Thanks so much, y'all. Have a great week. God bless. College Football Nerds here talking Florida and Kentucky. We did a Florida and Utah preview last week. Both picked Florida. People called us crazy. Florida won. So we're taking a little bit of a revisit of that and talking about the Kentucky game. I got Josh with me here. He's getting nerdy. We're going to be talking a little, not as many numbers this time because we don't have enough data to really get into it. So we're going to talk a little bit about teams, a little bit about schemes. Didn't mean to rhyme, but I did it anyway. Um, Josh, with the Utah game, first of all, everybody thought we were crazy. The, game, the line was only three points. Um, we both picked Florida for a couple of reasons. One, we thought Anthony Richardson would give them fits. He did. We thought that Utah, unless they really got into Florida's depth, which they did at the end of the game, unless they really got into Florida's depth, the frontline talent, they were they were outmatched. Um, and then we gave the home crowd really the reason that would put things into um, a tipping point for Florida, which I think it did. Um, but, but, Josh, looking at this game, they're coming off a huge win on number seven Utah. And they got come, Kentucky coming into town, who didn't look great in the first half. They turned it on late against Miami of Ohio. They're at home, and it's only a four-point spread. What's going on there? Yeah, it's interesting. So the spread for this game is only four and a half. Now, we, we kind of flagged right with the Utah game that it was only a few points. 
but now it's kind of spreading the other way, right? There was a top 10 Utah. I picked Florida 31-28. You picked Florida 24-20. Uh, I feel like we got a little bit of right to talk about it, but like, do you agree with me? I feel like the fact that this is a four and a half point spread in Florida's favor kind of means this is the exact same situation as the Utah game, but in reverse. Like, I feel like Kentucky is the under-respected underdog here and is probably... I mean, dare I say like a Utah light in this matchup? Yeah, I think Utah light really kind of puts him in trouble because of scheme. But I also think that you're right. It's only four, four points, which might surprise people. We keep telling people to stop being surprised about Kentucky and their brand name. Like, you know, Big Ten fans get us out, of, get at us all the time. And we're like, you know, you say Kentucky's overrated, but you keep losing to them in bowl games. Boom roasted so maybe they're just good and you don't want to give them credit i think that vegas doesn't care about any of that they don't care about brand name they don't care about who you beat last week they care about obviously getting the money right and people always say that they want money on both sides so it's not about predicting a win but if they predict F florida by 50 obviously they're not going to get the money right so they got to get close in some regards so yeah i think you're right that they're giving kentucky a lot of credit that maybe people who saw the first half of that game last week and then saw Florida play Utah aren't giving them. Yeah, and I think the most difficult thing when you're trying to evaluate these two teams really is trying to understand how you try to measure the performance of Kentucky in a game against Miami of Ohio. But they slept walk for a half. They don't have a ton of firepower relative to SEC standards right now. But they do have a good offensive line. They do have good backs. It didn't necessarily show at times, but when they got going, they got going. Um, and you also have two very different quarterbacks, right? I mean, Cam Rising was a running quarterback, and I think they gave a lot of fits to Florida in just trying to keep the edge in containment. Whereas with Will Levis, you've got a guy that, yeah, he's mobile, but he's definitely a downfield passer, way more than Cam Rising is. Um, and this gets back to a concept we've talked a lot, right? You know, Florida gets Ventral Miller back at linebacker, my big concerns with Florida have always been ever since they had McIlwain and it Dale, Dale kind of continued on a Mullen, they don't have the top end athleticism on that defense as you would expect. And at times they can kind of give up the edge and at times they kind of struggle a little bit with speed. And if they're kind of reduced to a sound pound and ground defense and offense with Richardson, I mean, that's kind of Kentucky's ball game, right? Yeah, I think it is, although I will also say that not just, you know, we, we, we said Utah light, and I think that some of that might be in the trenches for once. But one thing I will say that, you know, you talk about them being downfield, but they're also a little more creative offensively than I thought, than I thought Utah was. But turning that back around, Josh, one of the things that really hurt Florida was – Cam rising, running the ball consistently and keeping the chains moving. Is that going to be Kentucky's MO in this game too? Or are they going to try to test Florida with some shots? Well, I'm not going to say Florida fans aren't used to shots, but I do think that there's a potential for Kentucky to rely more on the, the ground and pound. Uh, I think the jury's still out a little bit on what Utah really is as a team. Um, I certainly think the jury's out on Oregon, but you know, as a whole in the Pac-12, it, it's so hard to evaluate these teams because they stay isolated, they play each other, and what looks like a football team that's really physical in the Pac-12 may turn out not to be physical at all. I mean, 
Uh, Utah did sort of annihilate Oregon a couple times physically last year, uh, but I'm not sure how much that means after having seen Georgia play them. So I, I do think Kentucky is going to try to stay a stay you know in good down and distance. Try to lean on Cavassier smoke. Try to lean on the fact that they've got some big physical players, knowing they don't have maybe the top end explosive end athletes. You know, there's no Wandell Robinson on that roster. Uh, and you know, there's certainly not a Randall Cobb, right? So the, I, I don't think that they're, they're going to try to go downfield that much. I think they're going to rely on Levis to be efficient. One thing I think we should mention too is Rodriguez was out of the game for Kentucky. He's still suspended. It was week one. The running game was very ineffective, uh, only averaging a couple yards per carry, but look, it was week one. Things are rough. I think both of us are kind of making an assumption based off recent history that Kentucky's going to be able to run the ball well, but I'd kind of be remiss if we didn't at least mention that. And let's, if we can, I want to turn the conversation around a little bit too and say, I think a lot of Florida fans are going to object to this and say, well, we've got an offense that's going to be so good that we're going to be able to score a billion points and we're going to be able to put up a ton on Kentucky because if we can do this to Utah, we can do it on a Kentucky. And part of this conversation is I think Kentucky can stay in the game scoring with a kind of consistent down and distance offense in large part, because I don't really buy that Florida is going to explode. Yeah, I think that in, and look, Florida fans aren't going to like me saying this. They've already got at me a little bit from our top 10, which we both had Florida in our top 10 in week one. We both have them in our top 10 in week two. People called us crazy for not having Utah in our top 10 in week one and having Florida there. We can take a victory lap on that. But all that to say that we don't hate on Florida. We don't ha- we've been talking about how Anthony Richardson is going to be a big part of this offense and a big weapon for them. In week one against Utah, there were some things I didn't love. I think he had like seven and a half yards per attempt passing. Like, And that's not just a box score watching thing. Like, There were some times where that offense sputtered. And running the ball, yeah, he had the long 45-yarder or whatever. Um, and I think that one thing that's great about them is they're good in the red zone. They're like the reverse of Georgia, where that, you know, Georgia is unstoppable between the 20s. You can maybe slow them down. The only way you can beat them is maybe slow them down in the red zone. I think Florida's different in that they're going to struggle a little more between the 20s. But if you get them in that 10-yard, you know, 10, 15-yard range from the goal line, they're going to score every time. So, I've got some I've got some reservations with Anthony Richardson right now. I don't know that I have them in week seven or eight, but I have them right now because this is still a new offensive system for him. He's still running the show, and it's it's a lot to learn. I think he did learn a lot in that week one, but I don't know that we can just chalk up forty points for Florida every week yet. I think that there's there's going to be some like you know three or four drives in a row where they put up points, and then three or four drives in a row where they go three and out. Yeah, uh, I, I agree with you. I mean, if you look at the box score, again, box scores aren't everything. We do watch the games, but it does help try to make sense of what you've seen. I mean, Anthony Richardson had over 100 yards rushing on 11 carries, but if you're running for 7.3 yards per carry in a game, you expect to probably score more than 29 points. Why did that happen? It's because the passing game was inconsistent. Uh, and the key to an efficient offense is... One, staying in short down and distance, but more than anything, it's having a passing game that can really bail you out. That's how you take an efficient offense. I say key to an efficient offense, key to an efficiently scoring offense, right? How do you take an offense that's very efficient, make them score points? You've got to have the ability to convert with your arm, not just with legs. And I think that's what holds Florida scoring down. And I think it's going to be a problem, frankly, for them all year. 
Um, last year, we talked a lot about the fact that I didn't think Anthony Richardson was ready. I know a lot of Florida fans feel like he should have started game one and worked into it. I don't think he was anywhere close to being able to run that scheme, frankly. I think you can put that on Dan Mullen having the wrong scheme for him, and we were critical about that. I think they have a better scheme for what Richardson is and what he can do. But if you're looking for them to expand that scheme to be a lot more aggressive with how they throw downfield, I think that's kind of a mistake. I think Richardson executes really well with his arm throwing to point targets. He still misses some things about how routes develop, about how you know you want to do certain concepts. And particularly, it's things like blitz pickup, how to do a hot read. Those are things he really struggled with last year. I think he's better at it. He's still not 100% there. So that does limit you a little bit offensively. And again, I'm a guy that picked Florida win that game last week by three points and had him in my top 10 to start the season. I have a lot of faith in Florida, but I also am aware of their limitations. So for me, that's that's kind of the big deal. I think, I think they're going to run the ball well. I don't know that they're going to run for 7.3 yards per carry. I think they're going to throw the ball a little better. And I think it balances out to around the same performance. And, and, you know, do you mind if we go ahead and get into score predictions now? I want to ask you one question before you give us your score, because I've been thinking through okay. this. I've been thinking through this a little bit um, based on what I saw Saturday, and I do think that there is an analog to Kentucky and to Utah, um, and that's that's out of respect for Kentucky. We have been Kentucky stands on this show for a while, and people just don't listen to us. This might be where, where I frustrate some Kentucky fans a little bit, but tell me if you agree with this. Levis better than Rising, but Utah roster better than Kentucky roster. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I was looking at the defensive roster earlier, and they've got, you know, they've got some guys like, you know, Jacquez Jones or Afari that can sort of rush the passer and, and, and some guys like that. But I feel like at its core, Utah has a strong roster top to bottom. Um, and they've got like a the, super senior laden roster too. Like they've got a lot of experience on that roster. Um, yeah. And so going into where where now one thing we said about that game is because of COVID and because of the Pac-12 and, and sort of the rotational stuff, Utah had not played in a really hostile environment. Oregon is the best example and they hadn't played in Oregon since 2017. So nobody on that, on that roster has really played in that environment. Kentucky players have. So I think that that's one thing where they're not going to be shell-shocked in that kind of way, maybe, that, that, that Utah was. But, yeah, go ahead and give me your score. I just wanted to get think through that a little bit. But, yeah, give me your score. So my score was just is 27-24, Florida. <laughs> um, and I, I, I'm sure I, – is that your score too? Is that what you're laughing? Well, give me your teams first. Okay, well, 27, Florida – 24 Kentucky. I'm 27, uh, 23. Um, right, okay. Right well, yeah. And, you know, if you look at the spread and again, we do our predictions without looking at the spread, but it is kind of informative. I think if your prediction's in line with the spread, if you call someone crazy, you're being a little ridiculous and you need to look at yourself because Vegas does in these games, they're trying to set on the average result. There's some others where they play games and they try to goad you into something, but people know people are high on Florida. And if they're giving Kentucky a lot of credit. If anything, you should be concerned that they're underplaying Kentucky because they know people are going to be high on Florida this week. But yeah, it's a 52 point over under four and a half point spread. 27, 24 is three points and 51 over under. And there's a reason we're both at that number. And there's a reason Vegas is, I think that's the most likely outcome in this game. Um, I think Florida 
I feel like Florida's going to look like the better team. I just think they're going to have a hard time separating themselves a lot on the scoreboard. See, I, I'm a little different. I think Florida is the better team. I think they might look early like not the better team. They had a, that was a tough game last week. and it, I'm sure it took its toll. And while Kentucky didn't look great, they could kind of put it on cruise control and win that game. It also means they didn't have to show a lot of tape to Florida. So they've got yeah, wrinkles. Say that. They've got wrinkles. They can they they can hold them back and 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 so I think that there's some of that there that's going to show Kentucky better early. Um, but the other thing people are going to say, well, if you just what if they just you know if they're able to stop Anthony Richardson? Look, it's not like Utah didn't plan for that going into that game. Some people are just that good that you can't stop them. Um, so, Josh, one more thing before we close this out: Are we in the we're on the edge of variability zone. You talk about people saying you can't call somebody crazy if they're picking this close. If we, you know, look up and this score is, is 27-23 Kentucky at the end of the game, that's completely expected, like, right? Like, we're, we're that, that result doesn't surprise us at all, right? Yeah, we say a lot of times the closer the score gets to 15 points, basically, the more variability comes into play. Because at this level... You're only talking about three or four scoring possessions. So one call back to yesterday, one muff punt, two muff punts. <laughs> you probably lose the ball game if Florida if Florida is minus two or higher in the turnover margin. That's saying that's probably enough to lose. So anytime you're really you're below thirty points, variability is a major factor. And certainly when you get to the low twenties or high teens, uh, almost anything can happen. I neither, no result will shock me. It won't shock me if Florida, you know, one muff punt from Kentucky and suddenly this is 31 17 right uh so this is a game that's very much on the knife's edge but definitely I think an under maybe underappreciated game in terms of the national landscape and in terms of competitiveness and Vegas is flagging it right this is a game where Kentucky is a ranked team for a reason they're a good football team they got to slow play last week break some stuff in hide whatever wrinkles they want to throw in while Florida had to put all their cards on the table this is really perfectly set up, I think, for Kentucky to pull an upset if they want to. I don't think they do, but they're set up well to do it. And, and look, <clears throat> I said on the show, I've got Florida in my top 10. I don't expect the AP to have them in there at the end of the year because they're going to lose some games. they got a tough schedule. This is one of those games, Josh, where I'm not dinging Florida if they lose this game. If Kentucky wins this game, it doesn't change my perception. I don't get sour on Florida and think they were overhyped coming out of Utah. I just think a lot of the factors, like you said, are working against them to win the game. I still think they do, but if they don't, I'm not shocked. But one last thing before we wrap it up, Josh, is it true or false? The winner of this game is going to get way overvalued potentially, and the loser of this game is going to get a bigger hit on their perception than they should. No, totally. I think the loser of this game is going to take a bigger hit than they should. I think the winner is going to rise up in the rankings, but they're just not going to credit whoever loses, particularly if Florida beats Kentucky. Uh, and this is where there's some distinctions, right? We we kind of, with Notre Dame, didn't give a ton of credit to Ohio State for losing that one close or winning that one close. And that's because I think Notre Dame is maybe a top 15 team, not a top 10 team. Um, I think Kentucky is legitimately a top 25 team. Like I don't think Kentucky is that much worse than Notre Dame. And I'll be honest, I think Kentucky may be better than anyone on Utah's schedule. I think they met, they are probably are better than Oregon. They might be better than USC. We'll see where their defense is really at. So I don't think they're, you're going to get credit if you lose the way you should. And I certainly don't think you're going to get credit if you win the way you should. Um, 
so yeah, I think that's definitely something that's true in this game. It, it's just people don't respect the Kentucky brand, uh, and I think that's all it really comes down to. And Not nearly as much as they should. They should because they keep winning. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, that we're we're right on it here. I would venture to say that Kentucky might be better than Notre Dame, which is why. You know, Ohio State fans got mad at us for not giving them credit for beating a top five team. But look, think of all the other times that Notre Dame's been top five when they played someone who won a national championship. They got killed. So if Ohio State wants to be judged by that, then they're going to get kind of criticized. In the same vein, we're not judging Florida or Kentucky as national champions. So we give a little bit of fudge on that end, you know, in terms of like, you know, if you want to be a solid top 15 team, you know, these are your warts, but we're not going to really crush you for it. I think the loser of this game is going to get unfairly crushed. All right, y'all, let us know in the comments what you think this score is going to be. This is a really fun one. We're looking forward to it, and we want to mix it up with y'all. Thanks so much, y'all. Have a great week, and God bless. Some people just know the best rate for you is a rate based on you with Allstate. Not one based on the driver who treats the highway like a racetrack and the shoulder like a passing lane. Why pay a rate based on anyone else? Get one based on you with DriveWise from Allstate. Not available in Alaska or California. Subject to terms and conditions. Rates are determined by several factors, which vary by state. In some states, participation in DriveWise allows Allstate to use your driving data for purposes of rating. While in some states, your rate could increase with high-risk driving. Generally, safer drivers will save with DriveWise. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.